Man, isn't that so good? Wow. Amen. Amen. Well, is the bubble biblical? It's really hard to say. Try saying that five times fast. Some of you at home are trying that right now, aren't you? Is the bubble biblical? Now, bubbles are ideal for pandemics. Literally, right now, as we speak, in Orlando, Florida, at Walt Disney World, the NBA is trying to salvage what is left of their season, try to relaunch the season. And so they have welcomed 22 teams into what they are calling a bubble environment. And so they're only allowing players, coaches, select personnel in. No one can just come in. No one can leave. You have to be tested several times before you get in. If you get the virus, you're immediately escorted out, and then you have to go into quarantine before you can come back in. And so they're trying to just salvage the season so that we could have real sports. And to be honest, I could not be more ecstatic. I'm getting kind of sick of seeing replays of cornhole tournaments and dodgeball tournaments on ESPN, what has essentially become ESPN the Ocho. So bubbles are great for pandemics but terrible for kingdom living. And as Christians, it's so easy for us to get into that Christian church bubble, get in that bubble mindset. And if I wanted, in fact, sometimes this happens, sadly, I go home, I see my family, my wife, my kids, I go to bed, I come to the church, I do ministry, I'm at the church most of the day, I go home, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, And oftentimes, I don't even cross paths with an unchurched, unsafe person. And I hate that. It's so easy for pastors especially to get in our little church bubble, probably for all of us to be in our church bubble. Now, there is nothing wrong with sending your kids to Christian schools, to having a Christian hairdresser, a Christian mechanic, a Christian accountant, nothing wrong with that. But are you only around Christians? Are all your friends only Christians? If so, there's something wrong with that. When when you get home, do you immediately go pull into your garage and close the garage door, or do you go out and talk to your neighbors? How much of a burden do we have for the lost? See, living on mission goes against the grain of our comfort, goes against our flesh, and living on mission has so much resistance, and we as humans naturally take the path of least resistance. But the kingdom of God has this expansive element to it. And in a bubble, you can only expand to the limits of that bubble. So is the bubble biblical? I would say no. So today we are talking about mission. What does it mean to live on mission? This is one of our core values at Bethel. We're in this series called Rediscover, talking about our four core values, which are worship, community, service, mission. Worship, community, service, mission. Worship, community, service, mission. We're going to say it a lot over the upcoming months and years because we want it to be ingrained in your mind, to be ingrained in our church culture. So what's the first one? Worship or spirit and truth. This is delighting in God's word and God's glory. And the expectation at Bethel is that you would be a part of our worship services as we worship Jesus together and that you live your life in such a way that you're seeking God, and it is evident that Christ has ultimate worth in your life. So worship, what's the second one? Community, or truth in love. So this is growing disciples, investing in relationship with other growing disciples. It's helping one another, one anothering. It's authentic community, doing life together. 
And the expectation at Bethel is that you would be a part of a small group and you would experience Christian community there. What's the third one? Service or truth in love. So this is the body of Christ, ministry done within the body of Christ for the benefit of the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. So you are using your spiritual gifts, your talents, your passions to serve one another within the body of Christ. And what's the last one? Hopefully you get this one we're talking about today. Mission or grace and truth. So this is anything you do intentionally to expose people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. You are living for God's glory, wanting others to know him. And I'm so grateful that last week, Pastor Dustin uh, preached on worship. And I got to tell you, I feel so honored to be a part of this preaching team. You know it's a good teaching team when the worship pastor can step up to the plate and knock it out of the park. And man, he did. And he teed up today perfectly, set this up, because worship leads to, what do you think? Mission. To put it another way, a missional heart arises out of a worshipful heart. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, in your Bible, on your phone, on your tablet. You can look at the screen, but it's best if you have some scriptures before you. Matthew 5, verse 13. Here's what, the words of Jesus, here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how could it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, this version of you is in second person plural. If you lived in Texas, you're a Texan. My wife is from Tennessee, she says this all the time. Second person plural would be y'all. Jesus is saying, y'all are the salt of the earth. So who is he talking to, the apostles? Well, yes, but more than that, all who follow him. Now when you're in Texas and you get really serious, you might even say, all y'all, all y'all are the salt of the earth. If you are a Christian, these verses pertain to you. And notice, this is an emphatic statement. This is not a suggestion. Well, gee, Willikers, if you would like to be salt of the earth, you know, if it's convenient for you, if it's not too much trouble, would you please think about being salt of the earth? No! You are salt of the earth. It implies identity and significance. To put it another way, your purpose arises out of your identity. And so, the main idea this morning, by the way, is Christians reflect the light of Jesus to a dark world to the glory of God. And the first point is your purpose arises out of your identity. Now, what does Jesus mean by the salt of the earth? Well, theologians have all kinds of theories on this. I'm going to give you three of them. 2,000 years ago, they used salt just like today as seasoning to flavor, enhance the flavor, to improve the taste. So maybe Jesus is saying that we as Christians are to improve the quality of society. We are to make the world a more palatable place. We are to bring wisdom to the world. Salt was also used as a preservative. They would put salt within food or meat to make sure it didn't spoil. So maybe Christians, perhaps we are to preserve truth, 
to prevent corruption, prevent spiritual decay, moral deterioration, perhaps. It was also used as an antiseptic. So when someone had an open wound, they would put salt in it, which have you ever had, have you ever swam and realized you didn't have cuts in the ocean and then you're like, ah, right? It stings. It's doing something. And so they believed it was treating an open wound. It was cleansing the open wound and it was promoting healing. And so maybe perhaps Christians are to fight the infection of sin, to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I think I've heard that somewhere. Romans 12. Maybe it's, all of these, maybe it's one of these, maybe it's none of these. Does it really matter which salt function Jesus is referring to here? I say no. That's not the point. The point is the usefulness and the benefit of salt. Look what Jesus says here. He says, if salt has lost its taste, literally, in the Greek, this is phrased, if salt becomes foolish. I think this is a play on words. Jesus is using double entendre. The same word for tastelessness is the same word for foolishness. And so he's saying, how could salt be made unsalty? That would be foolish. That would be silly. That would be ridiculous. How can salt be saltless? It would therefore lose its value. Unsalty salt would be good for nothing. Now, in ancient times, in Israel, around the Dead Sea, and listen, I've been to the Dead Sea. It is hot. It is dry, water evaporates like that. And so they would have all these salt deposits along the shore of the Dead Sea. And they would mine these salt deposits for these salt crystals, which were composed of gypsum, lime, and sodium chloride. And on really humid days, the sodium chloride would leach out of the crystals. It would dissolve out, but you wouldn't know. It still looked like salt, and the only way you can know is if you tasted it, but if you tasted these tasteless salt crystals, it could even be possibly harmful if you ingested it. So Jesus is saying it's useless, it's without purpose. In fact, in Luke 14, he says, it's not even useful for fertilizer, it's not even useful for the manure pile. You know things have gone bad if you say it's not even useful for dung. And Jesus is saying, ultimately, saltless salt is not living up to or fulfilling your purpose as a Christian. But see, unsalty salt still looks like salt, right? You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's only when you taste it that you discover that it's lost its flavor and therefore its purpose. Now, early on when my wife Sky and I were dating, this was many moons ago, we had been dating maybe three months. And we go over to a friend's house with a group of friends and we're getting ready to watch a movie. And the parents of our friends uh, of our friend says, hey, we're going to go to the store. We're going to leave you guys here. Continue to watch your movie. We'll be back later. We said, okay, no problem. And some time passes, and someone says, man, I'm really hungry. What are we going to eat? Yeah, me too. I don't know. And so we were trying to deliberate. What are we going to have for dinner? And Skye, being the servant-minded sweetheart that she is, who I really hope is watching right now, <clears throat> brownie points, <laughs> say, <laughs> says, uh, you know what? I... I I can, I can make dinner for us. And our friend, who's the hostess, says, oh, what a servant-minded sweetheart you are. Probably. And she says, okay, let's go to the kitchen. I'll show you where all the apparel is. I'll show you the cabinet. You can use whatever you want in the cabinet, the, the pantry, the fridge. Have at it. And so Skye is perusing through everything, and she finds a box of spaghetti noodles. She finds some spaghetti sauce in the fridge, and she finds a Tupperware full of meat. So she pulls it all out. She puts the spaghetti noodles in the pot. It starts boiling. The noodles get all noodly, 
She pours in the sauce, dumps in the meat, and she's stirring it up. And the parents come home, and they say, hey, uh, how's it going? Good? What, what, what you up to? Well, I, I'm making dinner for the group. Oh, what a servant-minded sweetheart you are. Probably. And they say, uh, what you making? Oh, uh, spaghetti. Oh. Are, are those the ingredients you're using? Yeah. Those ingredients right there. Yeah. You're using what was in the Tupperware. Yeah. Why? And they said, um, no big deal. Uh, it, that's, uh, that, that's dog food. Now, why in the world this family kept dog food in a Tupperware unlabeled in their fridge, I don't know, <laughs> makes no sense to me. I, I don't blame Sky one bit, but here's the thing. If these parents had been delayed 10 minutes, now it would have been a much funnier story, but I guarantee you, because I had been dating her only three months, you know, when you're, you're still in that honeymoon phase, I would have been like, mm. oh, Sky, this is so good. This is so good. Where did you learn to cook like her? Right? Praise God they arrived when they did. But here's the thing. I saw the meat. It looked like whatever beef meat. It did not look like dog food. But sure enough, if you were to taste it, it would have tasted like dog food. And some in the church have the appearance of spirituality, have the appearance of religion. But if it is not lived out, they are not living up to their purpose and therefore are unsalty, saltless, Salt. And Jesus is warning against this. So why are we not more salty, friends? One word. Fear. Look at the few verses before this. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, church, this will be the world's attitude toward you if you live for Jesus. Jesus says, what, what servant is greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Buckle up, friends, because if you live for Jesus, it's coming. But that should not stop us from seeking to impact the world for Christ. Persecution should not make us shy away from declaring the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can merely kill the body. <sighs> That's nothing. Fear him who can kill both the body and soul in hell. He's saying fear God, don't fear man. You know where the fastest growing evangelical Christian population is right now in the world? Iran. Iran, a Muslim nation, 19.6% annual growth. Christian movement is just like exploding. They're like wildfire, it's spreading. You know what second, second most fastest growing evangelical Christian population, what country? I, now, I knew about Iran. I would never have guessed this. Afghanistan with a 16.7% annual growth rate. In fact, nine of the top 10 fastest growing Christian movements are in countries with systemic persecution of Christians. Now, what does that tell us? We're to fear God, not man. Persecution cannot stop the kingdom of God from spreading. I think that should probably get an amen. Hopefully you guys at home are, are amening that. You can't stop God from moving. 
And so we should not be afraid of man. Fear God instead. You know, one of our ministry partners emailed me this week, and I'm not even at liberty for his security to say who. He lives in South Asia. He emailed me about a friend of his in a different country in South Asia who is a pastor who grew up Buddhist. His family was devout Buddhist, and he gets saved, radically saved by the gospel of Jesus. And just unbelievable story. I wish I had time to tell his testimony. But he becomes a church planner. And he recently launched a new church where they have seen this year, 2020, coronavirus year, 30 new believers who came out of a Buddhist background trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That should get an amen. And here's what he wrote, this pastor friend. This is the prayer request. He said, we got information yesterday about a conspiracy by the Buddhist monks and villagers against our family and the new believers who attend our church from a Buddhist background. So he's saying, there are some in this community who are threatening their lives, him, his family, and all these new believers in this new church. He says, we are praying and living in peace. No matter what happens, even if we have to die for Christ, we are ready for any persecution. We will not give up the ministry here. We know there is strong opposition, but we also know that God is with us and he will never leave us. You know why I get so choked up? I've never met this guy. I've seen a picture of him in his church. I've never met this dear brother in Christ, but we should pray for him and his family and his church. But I don't get choked up because of that. I get choked up because I want that. I want that kind of courage and determination and boldness for the gospel. We should have a holy discontentment with the church in America because many Christians are dangerously close to being unsalty salt. I'm so sick of playing patty cake. When are we going to get serious about taking the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus? Our silence and our apathy speaks volumes. Imagine, and I know you've heard this illustration before, but imagine if you had the cure to cancer, this horrific evil disease that destroys lives and families. You have the cure to cancer. Now, aside from the fact that you'd be rich beyond your wildest dreams, let's say that you withheld that for yourself just in case you or your family got cancer, but you didn't give it to anyone else, you would be the most wicked, vile, evil person on God's green earth. And what we have is so much greater. Because what we have, who we have, doesn't cure cancer. He cures humanity. He cures brokenness. And everything the world wants, we have. They want peace. We know the Prince of Peace. They want purpose, we have purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They want hope in a hopeless world. You know, in the first few weeks of the pandemic, I read an article where there was a group of people who ingested diluted bleach because they thought they had the virus and they were so scared that it was gonna kill them and a few of them died and all, almost all of them got severely ill. And I read that, I'm like, why? What would possess them? What would compel them to do such a foolish act? Hopelessness. They were putting their hope in a cure, and some are putting their hope in a vaccine, or their hope in politics, or their hope in you name it, whatever. Our hope is in Jesus. We have hope. We know the God of hope. Our world is looking for love. You know, loneliness, stress, anxiety are, have skyrocketed. 
Pastor Stephen Ganshell wrote a blog article in the last week or two. I encourage you to read it. It's so good. He says 75% deal with those things right now. 75% of probably people in this room are dealing with loneliness, stress, and anxiety. They want love. Our world wants love, and we know the God who is love. We're in the midst of death. We're seeing death, and we know the creator of life. We have all the world wants. Why would we withhold him? And so the next point is your purpose has usefulness. Live in such a way that you are useful to God's kingdom. Perhaps God still has us around to be salty to the world. We still have a purpose. And so what is our purpose, Christians? Well, he looks, he says this, look at the next verse, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Light was used to indicate in Scripture the knowledge of God or truthfulness or God's glory or holiness or righteousness or joy or gladness. Light was never used with a bad connotation as opposed to darkness, which often symbolized depravity and evil and wickedness. And though our world claims enlightenment, it tarries in darkness. And light is distinctive from darkness, and yet it also affects the darkness around it. Now, wait a minute. You might be thinking, well, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I thought he said he is the light of the world. Well, he did. But we are the means God uses to reflect his light toward others around us. Surely you know the light is, the moon is not a light source. Now, I've been at, you know, at nighttime when it's really dark, but you have a full moon that's so bright, there's a big harvest moon, something like that, and you could turn your headlights off and you could still see almost everything. The moon can get very, very bright, but it is not a light source. It reflects the splendor and the illumination of the ultimate true light source, the sun, and we, friends, are not the light source. We direct people to the light source. Apart from Jesus, we have no shine. And if you're not evangelistic, it's probably because you are not abiding in the light. So church, are we gonna be a full moon? A gibbous moon or a crescent moon? How much are we gonna reflect the glory and gospel of Jesus? Turn to John chapter one. John chapter one, we see one of the just most beloved, beautiful passages in scripture. Verse nine, John chapter one, verse nine, it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So Jesus is the true light, and true believers follow the true light, and we see that believing in Jesus is central to the good news of salvation. Receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is central to all this that we are talking about. And then we get to verse 14, and we see that God is the great missionary of the scriptures. See, the word mission literally means to send out. And God is both the sending one and the sent one. So what did he do? Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. Someone say, praise God. And he dwelt among us. This word dwelt is actually the word tabernacled among us. 
those in the historical original context reading this would immediately get a, a word picture, a, a mental thought of the Old Testament where God brought his people Israel out of bondage in Egypt and he's leading them with Moses through the wilderness. And as they are doing that for 40 years, they, they built an ornate huge tent called a tabernacle, the Lord's tabernacle, right in the middle in the center of camp. And that's where the manifest presence of the Lord dwelt among his people. And now this is saying the word Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled among us. That's incarnational ministry, friends. Incarnational literally means in the flesh. God loves us so much as the ultimate great missionary that creator, the creator God became part of his creation to minister among his creation, to die at the hands of his creation, to save his creation. You can't get more missional than that. He was incarnational. There's no bubble here. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, listen, full of grace and truth. God meets us where we are. Praise God, God meets us where we are. That's grace. We don't have to earn our way to God. But he loves us too much to leave us there. That's truth. And if we look closely, we see a missional blueprint here. Be incarnational, but live in grace and truth. So we go back to Matthew chapter five, and Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Can't do it, even if it wanted to be. Have you ever driven through Kansas? It's riveting. I'm just kidding. If any of you are from Kansas or if you're watching from Kansas, I love your state, wonderful people. But it's very flat. There's not a lot there. And so I remember my wife and I were driving on the interstate through Kansas at one point. It was dark, pitch black, you couldn't see anything. And Sky goes, you know, it kind of feels like we're in the middle of the ocean. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, it's flat. And you could see off in the distance these little twinkling lights. And she said, yeah, it kind of looks like ships. And I said, yeah, it kind of does. Now, if you wanted, those are farmhouses. Those are homesteads. If you wanted to hide those farmhouses in the middle of night, you just turn off the lights. Boom, easy. But if you wanted to hide New York City with a metro population of 20 million, you can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. Cannot be done. Cannot be hidden. Similarly, why would someone light a lamp and then cover it completely with a bucket that they would use to measure grain called a bushel. So, let's say your power goes out in your house and you say, all right, I got it, I got it, I got this little light here, don't worry, no problem, I got the light on, all right, there we go. They're like, what, what are you doing? Oh, no, 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 I, I, I like knowing the light is on. I don't, I don't want the light to shine in your eyes too brightly. I don't want it to offend anyone. So, uh, I just like knowing that it's there that it's on, so I hide it under a bushel, hide it under a bucket, right? How absurd! That would be ridiculous! What? Who would do that? This little light of mine, I'm not gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, yes. No! That's not how that song goes. The whole point that Jesus is making, the emphasis is on non-concealment. The gospel was never meant to be concealed. It is expressed to others through works, shown through our lifestyles, and through words. There are no secret disciples. Now, there are covert disciples that live in areas of persecution like we talked about, 
But they don't live in cowardice, they live in shrewdness. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We were not meant to live Benedictine, cloistered, monastic lives. The church cannot remain hidden. It was never meant to be. And yet, a survey came out, a study came out in 2019, just a year ago from Lifeway, where they found that 55% of churchgoers in America have not shared the gospel, have not told anyone about Jesus, have not shared their faith, their testimony with anyone in the last six months. I don't want us to be unsalty salt. I don't want us to be light without shine. We're not meant to be. Jesus says, a lamp gives light to all who are in the house. So light shines brightly for all who are in proximity of its rays, which necessitates being around those who don't know Jesus. Be visible. Be radiant. I love the video that we just saw, which is of a village in Brazil along the Amazon River. Uh, I've never met those folks, but I've been, my wife and I have been to the Amazon River ministering in a few villages in Brazil. In fact, one of the most amazing missions moments, mission memories of my entire life. We got to see 30 brand new believers baptized in the Amazon River. It was unbelievable, just like in the video. And I love what the guy in the video said. He said, I don't know if you could read this because of the subtitles or if you speak Portuguese, but if not, here's what he said. Jesus, through our lives, transforms other lives. It is difficult for a day to pass that I don't tell someone about Jesus. Man, God has taken me to a place of intimacy that allows me to talk. One of the biggest desires is to tell the world about what God has done. I cannot speak of anything but Jesus. I can't help it. I think of Peter and John, threatened by the Jewish leaders. You must stop preaching in that name. Whether it's right in your eyes or in the eyes of God, that's up to you, but we can't help it. We can't stop. Cannot stop. Cannot speak of anything but Jesus. That's why Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So the next point is your purpose is to shine brightly. See, everybody evangelizes. Everybody practices evangelism, whether you are a Christian, a Buddhist, an agnostic, atheist, doesn't matter, everybody evangelizes. The word evangelism literally means to share good news. Everyone does this, we do this all the time. We do that with, with good movies, good books, good restaurants, good food, you hear a good song, you tell others about it. Joy is naturally shared. We speak of what we admire. Pastor Dustin said it last week, worship does not stop, it is merely aimed. And so delighting becomes declaring. Your life is a billboard advertising constantly what is most important to you. And conversely, we do not commend what we do not cherish. So Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify God. Now this surprised me a little bit. I expected good news. He says good works. He means let others see you live differently than the world. Live for Jesus. Which means you have to have good news. Because how can you share good news? How can others know the good news? Good news is naturally shared. And good works. Good news and good works go hand in hand. I say that a lot. I keep saying it. Good news, good works have to go hand in hand. That's what Jesus did. You reflect Christ through good works while taking God-given opportunities to proclaim good news. See, good works without good news is dead religion. But good news without good works is hypocrisy. 
And, and I know what you're thinking, okay, well, I just need to muster up some good works. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn favor with God. I'm just going to try to be good. I'm going to try to do good things. No, don't muster up some good works. Good works come from a heart that's been changed by Jesus. Otherwise, it's behavior modification. It's works-based righteousness. Likewise, don't rush headlong into evangelism without worship. We see this in Psalm 51. David, who is praying this beautiful prayer of confession after he committed adultery and murder with Bathsheba and Uriah, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Renew me with a steadfast, willing spirit, and then I will tell transgressors your ways. So, Lord, we need you to cleanse our heart. Give us a willing, a steadfast spirit. Fill us with your spirit and, and, and restore to us the joy of your salvation, and then I will tell others about Jesus. Then I can tell others about Jesus. Then I'll want to tell others about Jesus. The Lord pours into you for you to pour into others. Pour into to pour out. And with salt and light, there's a distinction between us and those around us. But we also don't isolate ourselves from those around us. We impact those around us. Don't be influenced by the world and also don't be insulated from the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. And the point is, salt must be salty and light must shine. If salt were to become unsalty and light were to become unlighty, the purpose would be defeated. They must act in accord with their intrinsic nature. Why? The last phrase, Jesus says it right here, maybe the most important one, so that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, who is they? They who don't know Jesus yet, but will. Why do we shine our light before others? To give glory to God. This is God's number one consuming passion. It's, it's God's number one concern, and it should be ours as well. God's glory should drive our motives more than anything. His glory is the end game. So is it glory for me or glory for he? And yes, I know that's bad grammar, but it rhymes. Let's go with it. It's not to glorify the reflector of light, but the source of light. So don't let people see your good works to bring yourself glory. That's what the Pharisees did, and that's literally what Jesus condemns in the very next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 6, verse 1. So the last point is reflect Jesus to glorify God. You know, one of the great privileges I have in my role as missions pastor is I get to interact often with all of our ministry partners, global, regional, local, get to talk with them, encourage them, pray for them, get updates that we then pass on to you guys so you, you guys can also be praying for and encouraging them. But often when I have a conversation with them, I'm more encouraged, I think, than they are. And this was the case this last week. I was emailing in a conversation with Ty Stakes, and he said, hey man, how are you, how are you doing? I said, well, listen, brother, I, I got to be honest, I'm struggling. This is a hard year. It's a hard year for everyone. This is a hard year in ministry. We see all the disunity. We see uh, the, the struggles. We see the fear. 
We see all this stuff, and we're just, we're wrestling with this. And I said, you know, in the first few months, in my heart, I saw a missional zeal for our community. I saw that in our church. And then as soon as the quarantine ended, it kind of just started to dissipate. In my heart especially. And here's how he replied. I thought this was so encouraging. I want to pass it on to you guys. He said, the current situation illustrates how beneficial it is to be out of our comfort zones in terms of discipleship. We so easily slip into a comfort coma and we lose sight of the Lord's leading and passion. On the other hand, when our comfort zone is shaken up and we are under pressure in need or desperate or off balance, we cry out to God and we seek him and his intervention. Maybe what you're struggling with is the incredible capacity we all have to slip back into that coma when the earth stops shaking. Isn't that good? Literally, the thunder just roared. Thank you, Lord. That was awesome. <laughs> Best pyrotechnics ever. But then he, went, he goes on to give this analogy, which I'm stealing from him. It's so good. I'm probably going to continue to use this through all my days in ministry. He says, think about climbing a tree. I hate climbing. My wife is a climber. She, she did rock climbing, mountain climbing. She loves tree climbing. I never did that as a kid because I'm kind of all gangly and uncoordinated. So I don't like it. But he said, think about climbing trees. Let's say that the Lord says, hey, do you see this vast, big, huge, tall tree in front of you? Yeah, I want you to climb it. And so he calls us to climb it. Now, most of the Western church, we say, but God, that's dangerous. Yeah, that's dangerous. God, that's risky. Yes, it's risky. God, that's hard. Yes, it's hard. But go, I'm commanding you to go up this tree, climb this tree. And so we'll stand next to the tree. We might touch the tree. We might even hug the tree, but it's hard for us to climb the tree. So maybe we obey. Maybe we climb the tree, and it's tempting to stay close to the trunk. It's tempting to stay on the big limbs where things are steady and stable. We are comfortable, but the real action is high up in the tree, out on the thin limbs where things are real shaky, and we're we're not sure that we're on solid ground, and God is beckoning us, come on, come out step out, come out on a limb, pun intended. Risk life and limb, again, pun intended. Join me, come out here, and the beauty is that that's where mission happens. That's where our prayer life is most vibrant. That's where our dependence on God is cranked up because we are aware of our need for him, and quite frankly, that's where Jesus is too. And there's a closeness to him when we are in need He shows his power and his faithfulness in tangible ways. Let's go out on a limb, friends. Perhaps we should pray that he continues to shake the tree in 2020. He's not done shaking us. So Bethel Church, are we going to be a church of the cowardly and the comfortable or a church of the courageous and the compassionate? I say this a lot as well. This is our mission strategy. If we can put this up on the screen, pray, send, go. Pray, send, go. Now, we are not able to globally go this year. All international travel has been restricted. All of our go trips have been indefinitely postponed, but that's okay. We can still pray. We can still send, and we can go globally. I mean, excuse me, locally. We We can pray for locally our neighbors, our coworkers, our neighborhoods, our communities. We can pray for the three billion people who have no access to the gospel, who have never even heard of Jesus. We could pray for the thousands of unreached people groups that that church planting movements, disciple-making movements would spread like wildfire among them. 
We could, we could pray for the 50 million displaced peoples and refugees around the world. We could pray against human trafficking and sex trafficking. We could pray for our ministry partners, holding them up in prayer, supporting them. We can pray. And part of my job is to raise awareness so that God burdens your heart to pray. Second, we can send, meaning we can uh, be equipped, trained, and resourced to fulfill the Great Commission, both for us and others, so we can send resources. We, we are going to have several times this year a Cultivate workshop on how to have spiritual conversations with others. We're, gonna, we're looking at doing a cross-cultural ministry uh, class so you can learn how to engage other cultures and have conversations. And we're gonna go. And so locally, I, I met with our campus pastors last week and we talked about five things, a framework for local church missionality. And here's those five things. First, events. Evangelistic events, community events, large-scale service projects. Second, partnerships. We're gonna partner with local organizations to serve them and serve our community to volunteer. Third, blessing projects. We've been doing this all through the pandemic, blessing hospitals, schools, nursing homes, uh, uh, first responders, police officers. We're gonna to continue to do that. Fourth, offering unique and special creative services to the community that meet needs. And fifth, missional living. Which leads me to a resource I wanna give all of you here and all of you at home. Go to blesseveryhome.com. Go ahead and put it on the screen, blesseveryhome.com. Unbelievable tool for the gospel. This is a way to know your neighbors, pray for your neighbors, meet your neighbors, and every week it sends you an email with some of your neighbors and you can pray for them by name with specific scripture and prayer requests. It's a fantastic tool, blesseveryhome.com. Please use it. And maybe by the end of the summer, you can make a goal to meet all your neighbors and pray for them. Here's the thing. Charles Spurgeon said this quote. I'm gonna end with this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. That is what we should do.